We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As Gino said, we're going to look at verses 12 through 14 tonight. You want to get there in your Bible or navigate on your device? Just turn your sound down while you can. Or not. Ad agencies seem to understand that people like things either one way or another. Remember the long-running Miller Lite beer commercials? Celebrities and sports figures would argue as to whether they thought it was good because it was less filling or because it tastes great. Another way of saying people like things either one way or the other is to say that we're prone to go to extremes. Nowhere is this more prevalent than among Christians. We cannot seem to abide any amount of disagreement even over non-essential points of doctrine. Issues surrounding the Holy Spirit and His gifts are fraught with either-or arguments. And tonight we're going to see one of those areas where we tend to go to extremes, and I'm going to suggest that both extremes are, well, extreme, and we want to avoid them. The issue I'm talking about is what is commonly called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, Paul's going to say we were all baptized into one body. We'll see what he meant, and at first it's going to seem contrary to charismatics and to Pentecostal theology, but this one verse is not the whole story. So let's just get into it. Uh, Beginning in verse 12, it says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Paul draws upon the human body as an illustration for the church. You have one body, but it is made up of many different members or parts that are controlled by your head. When Paul says, so also is Christ, he means the church of Christ, uh, which Christ is the head, the different members of a congregation with their diversity of gifts form a united body, the body of Christ. It's a very simple illustration. It doesn't need to be uh, belabored. Now, think of this illustration with regard to the situation in Corinth. As we've said, and as we're going to see in chapter 14, the Corinthians seem to believe that every Christian could have the gift of speaking in tongues, and they insisted that everyone speak in tongues simultaneously during their church services. That would make no sense from the standpoint of a human body. As Paul will say a little later on, our body isn't just one giant member. Isn't there an allergy commercial where the person suffering from hay fever starts off as a giant nose? It's gross. What if he had to sneeze? Think of it in an all-glass building. But anyway, if you were going to make a commercial for the church in Corinth, you'd have to depict them as a room full of giant tongues. Talk about gross. This illustration was intended then to get them thinking about what they were doing and what they ought to be doing. Uh, Verse 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now, before we tackle the issue of Pentecostal spirit baptism Let's complete Paul's thoughts about the diversity of the one body of Christ. Sometimes you you can't always get off track on what's actually being said. Uh, We'll come back and talk about this baptism in greater detail. But for now, Paul is developing his argument. 
He says the body of Christ, the church, you and I, we are one because we have all received the same Holy Spirit. The things that distinguish us in the greater culture, he mentions ethnicity and social status, they are eliminated in the church because of our common experience of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that those distinctions don't matter or that they cannot be celebrated. Uh, In other places, Paul will say there's neither male nor female. He doesn't mean that there's no gender distinctions or that there aren't roles for men and roles for women. It means that we're all on equal footing in the body of Christ because we all receive the same Holy Spirit. Um, There is no significance in those things in the church. All have been made to drink into one spirit. That is emphasizing the spirit indwelling you as a believer. Just as you ingest water and it is then inside your body, so you receive the Holy Spirit and he comes to indwell each of us personally and all of us corporately as Christ's spiritual body on the earth. It's, it's both correct to say that you and I individually are uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit uh, and that he also corporately indwells the church. And so then verse 14, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Again, please note, Paul was stressing the diversity of the many members who make up the one body. A thoughtful person listening to Paul's letter would start to conclude on their own that their practice of emphasizing tongues over other gifts was not what Jesus had in mind for the many members of his one body. They ought rather to be encouraging a diversity of gifts in order to minister to one another and glorify the Lord. So that, that's, that's the real purpose of these three verses. Last week we were together, we saw a list, a partial list of some of the gifts that are available to Christians in this body, and it again emphasized diversity, not elevating one gift over another. <laughs> and now Paul is drawing out this metaphor and this illustration of the body saying, hey, when you get together, Um, You know, everybody has a part to play, and we don't want to be emphasizing any one thing because the body isn't just one member. Uh, And and so um, by the time you get to chapter 14, you, you, you can agree with Paul. You can understand what he's been saying, and you can see the error of just doing the one thing to the exclusion of all other things. They ought to be encouraging diversity in order to minister to one another and glorify the Lord. Now, in the ongoing debate about the Holy Spirit and his gifts, the phrase in verse 13 for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, it's often one of those extremes of either-or teaching. It it serves its... uh, Many teachers take it as an extreme uh, verse. It's become a key text, maybe the key text, that cessationists and other non-Pentecostals use to try to prove that since you are baptized by the Spirit at your conversion, there's no further experience with Him that could properly and biblically be called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. One very popular author writes, and he says, 
It's unfortunate that the term baptism of the Spirit has been divorced from its original New Testament meaning. The baptism of the Spirit occurs at conversion when the Spirit enters the believing sinner, gives him new life, and makes his body the temple of God. All believers have experienced this once-for-all baptism. Nowhere does the Scripture command us to seek this baptism because we have already experienced it, and it need not be repeated. And so that's the... uh, typical cessationist uh, conservative argument about this verse. Now, for their part, Pentecostals have long argued that not only is there such a further experience of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, sometimes also called the second blessing, but that speaking in tongues is, in fact, the evidence that you've received it. I won't ask for a show of hands, but many of you are going to come up to me later and say, yeah, I was in a Pentecostal church where they told me that if I didn't speak in tongues, I hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Some actually will go even farther and say that you're not even a Christian because if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, then you're not a Christian. And so, uh, hence, you get into all this kind of weird Uh, practice in some Pentecostal churches, extreme though it may be, of actually helping people to learn how to speak in tongues so that they can have a false assurance that they have received the Holy Spirit. And so so you've got this kind of a debate going on between the cessationists and the Pentecostals. Now, I'm saying that both of those arguments are extreme either-or arguments. So first, let's deal with what Paul actually meant in the context of these Verses. Now, let me quickly say, none of this has anything to do with water baptism. He says, you are baptized by the Spirit, and you drink into one Spirit. Nothing here about water baptism or about receiving the Spirit through or because of water baptism. That's an entirely separate issue uh, that has nothing to do with this. Now, Paul was most definitely describing the common experience of every genuine believer at the moment of conversion. I have to honestly admit that Paul was not referring to what Pentecostals commonly call the baptism with the Holy Spirit. He was not talking about an experience with the Holy Spirit that is separate from conversion. His entire point in these verses, or we would say in the context, is that the body of Christ is one precisely because every person who gets saved receives the Holy Spirit indwelling him. That's his whole point here. And so whatever he's saying about the baptism or the drinking of the Spirit, it is the common experience of every person who receives Jesus Christ. However, and this is a huge however, that does not mean conversion is the final experience a believer can or should have with the Holy Spirit. That would be saying too much. It would be going beyond what Paul said here and beyond his teaching elsewhere in the Scripture. And so while we as uh, uh, continuationists, charismatics, Pentecostals, whatever you want to call us, while we would have to agree with the conservative cessationists that, yeah, we're talking about being placed into the body of Christ, the common experience of every Christian, That's not the end of the story. That tells us nothing about the continued relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit. In his writings, Paul seems to think of the Christian life as being very dynamic 
And by that I mean that it is full of the Holy Spirit's power from conversion all the way to what we might call completion when the Lord has finished His work in us. For example, you don't need to turn there if you trust me, but in Galatians 3, 5, Paul told the believers that God had given them the Spirit and he says, he worked miracles among you as if that was the norm. He says, hey, by the way, you remember God gave you his spirit, and by that I believe he's talking about this common experience of salvation. And he said, and God worked miracles among you. It's in a section where he was telling them to continue in the spirit rather than to try to live the Christian life by self-effort. And so Paul is saying, hey, don't turn away from the Spirit of God uh, in order to try and live the Christian life by your own self-effort. Remember, God gave you His Spirit, and, it, and there were miracles being done in your midst. We learn from this larger exchange with the Galatians that Paul thought when you receive the Spirit at conversion, you would also receive His empowering and that it would manifest itself in some dynamic way not necessarily speaking in tongues or some gift of the Spirit, but there would be a new dynamic power in your life. That this was Paul's belief is further proven by an, a curious encounter he has with certain disciples of John the Baptist in the book of Acts. Acts 19, verses 1 through 7, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. There's a lot going on with these guys but the one point I'm making in reading these seven verses is that Paul recognized they had not received the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. He came upon this group of 12 guys. They said, hey, we're believers. And he says, well, what's wrong with you basically then since you're believers? Because there doesn't seem to be any evidence of the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit in your life. Either they were not yet saved or they were saved and they needed to understand the dynamic of the Spirit. Those are the only two possibilities, right? People are either saved or they're not saved. So maybe they're not saved and they get saved, or maybe they are saved and they just need a more complete understanding. And notice, too, Paul certainly thought they were saved when he baptized them in water. So whether they were saved previous or not, he says, well, now you're saved and I will baptize you because you, you can't imagine. Paul said, hey, I hardly baptize anybody because I don't want people to think that baptism is necessary for salvation. But he made it a point to baptize these guys. And you know, Paul, he's not going to baptize somebody who's not a Christian. And so now they're Christians. We would say, therefore, they were baptized in the Spirit, 
the way that we're looking at in this Corinthian sense. They became members of the body of Christ, and then Paul uh, baptized them in water in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ. Subsequent to both of those baptisms, Paul laid his hands on them, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them, and there was a manifestation of dynamic power. Now, it may have only been a few minutes later, but it was later. It was a separate experience. And so in this episode, this very important episode with these guys, whether you believe they were saved or not at first, they get baptized in the Spirit in this conservative sense that we're talking about, that you become a member of the body of Christ. And then sometime subsequent to that, there is an experience of dynamic power in the Holy Spirit. Paul thought there absolutely would be dynamic power in your life. And he went on to teach that that experience with the Holy Spirit was not a one-time thing, but that since he is necessary for living out the Christian life, there would be further ongoing experiences and appropriations of his empowering. And so you might say that Paul's theology of the Holy Spirit was that what happens or ought to happen at conversion needs renewing throughout your Christian life. In many places, uh, Ephesians 5.18, for example, he talked about a present tense ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit, with us continuing to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay, with that as our background, think about the scene in the first century for a minute. People were getting saved, and there was a manifestation of the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit, so much so that Paul could say to the Galatians, matter-of-factly, God gave you His Spirit, and He did miracles among you. So much so that he immediately recognized something lacking in the 12 disciples of John the Baptist. As time transpired, Paul had to warn the Galatians there was a danger of having begun in the Spirit, trying to perfect your walk by rules and regulations, by keeping the law, by worldly wisdom, instead of continuing to be refreshed and renewed in ongoing appropriations of the Spirit. And so this seems to be Paul's theology of the Holy Spirit. You get saved, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you are baptized into the body of Christ. We all have the common experience of receiving the Spirit, but He ought to be received in some power. There ought to be remarkable changes in our lives because now God indwells us, uh, maybe even visible manifestations like tongues and prophecy, not always, but sometimes. Uh, And... After we become Christians and have this amazing experience, then there is a danger that we will move away from that and decide that we're doing okay on our own. We don't really need the Holy Spirit. In fact, what we need is to return to different laws and rules and regulations uh, in order to live the Christian life. If Christians fail to heed Paul's warning and, in fact, begin to minimize the dynamic of the Holy Spirit in their lives and in their churches, what happens? Well, I think it was Alan Redpath who I first heard say, if the Holy Spirit were to be removed from most churches, you've heard this before, right? He goes on to say 95% of the activities of those churches would continue unhindered. And, and it's just a kind of a shocking way of him saying a lot of what happens among Christians is not really spirit-led. 
it, 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 it goes forward in the energy of the flesh. Now, obviously, no one has a, you know, a spiritual glasses. To, you know, I can't put on different glasses and see what is going on by the Spirit and what isn't. But uh, I think I buy into his analysis uh, that a lot of things would continue in most churches. I would hope that our whole church would fall apart if, if, you know, if it were even possible for the Holy Spirit to not be active among us. Uh, but Paul did warn, he says, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? So that is a real thing that happens among Christians where they just say, hey, God, I've got this now. I, I you know, thank you for saving me. Now, maybe you and I together or me on my own, we, we've got this. I want to be fair, the conservatives and the cessationists, those who believe that gifts of cease, certain gifts of cease, they do talk about the need to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you're out there thinking, well, you're not being fair, well, yeah, I am. They do talk about that, the absolute need to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. But they simultaneously deny certain gifts and almost all supernatural manifestations of the Spirit. So they say, look, you get the, you get the Spirit when you're baptized uh, into the body of Christ, uh, and you need to go on being filled with the Spirit. But understand, almost none of that is supernatural because there are no real supernatural gifts anymore. Those were limited to the first century. And so on a practical level, they downplay any show of the Holy Spirit's supernatural power, even at the time of conversion, emphasizing that conversion is mostly intellectual and that you get everything you're going to get except spiritual maturity that comes from the Holy Spirit helping you understand more about the Bible. And so I fully admit that the, uh, the cessationists will tell you you need to be filled with the Spirit, but in fact they act like there is no such thing. And it can end up being a great deal like having begun in the Spirit while trying to be perfected in the flesh. Now, again, think of this practically. If such a person, a believer, finally comes to see that they are trying to make themselves perfect in the flesh rather than by the Spirit, they often have what could be described as a second experience with the Holy Spirit that can be understandably called a baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so maybe a person has grown up in an extremely conservative situation, believing that gifts of the Spirit have ceased, uh, and, and somehow they come into a situation where they understand that there's more to the Christian life, and that more is letting the Holy Spirit really control them, and, and they, they kind of receive the Holy Spirit in an ongoing way, that seems like a baptism with the Holy Spirit to them, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with calling it that. Uh, Technically, biblically, you are baptized with the Spirit at the moment of your conversion. The experience ought to be dynamic, and it ought to be ongoing and renewable throughout your Christian life. If it wasn't dynamic at the time of your conversion, if, for example, you're like the disciples of John the Baptist, you might, in fact, experience something that is dynamic and then go on seeking its renewal subsequent to your salvation. Or you could even be like the Galatians who had a dynamic experience with miracles, but who were not seeking ongoing renewal, but rather to be made perfect by their own effort. And then you too would need to again experience the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this is why we sometimes see a revival. 
where there is, for lack of a better term, an outpouring or an outbreak of the Holy Spirit uh, because people have been walking in the flesh or, you know, not, not necessarily, you know, in a sinful way, but just trying to do the work of God in the flesh by their own efforts. And then the Holy Spirit has a time of renewal and refreshing in their lives. And so the Spirit baptism in this verse definitely describing the receiving of the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. It is the common experience of everyone who gets saved by which they are placed into the body of Christ, but it ought to be dynamic and powerful. It ought to go on being so. If not, then we need to receive a, uh, by faith a fresh work of the Spirit that I don't see why we couldn't call it a baptism and then go on living in the Spirit. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, I'll explain it again. <laughs> but uh, so, so the Pentecost, so the, the, the cessationists, the conservative, they're reading more into this verse than it says. But we want to be honest. We always want to be honest. They are right about what this verse says. This is not teaching a Pentecostal experience of a second blessing, but it is teaching that there should be a dynamic experience right from the beginning. And if there isn't, Paul says, hey, then you need to get back to that. You need to discover that or get back to that because the Christian life can't be lived uh, in the energy of the flesh. And it's not just about learning more. It's not just about your intellect. It's not just about maturing where the Holy Spirit's helping you a little bit to understand the Bible. It's about Him having control of your life and you stepping out in faith and exercising your gifts and all this. And so, uh, you know, when you start talking, if you're a cessationist, you start talking about, well, most of those gifts don't exist anymore. They were only for the first century because those people were, I guess, you know, a lot dumber than us. And they needed the proof, but we don't need any proof. We don't need any miracles. We don't need anything supernatural because why? Because we have the Holy Spirit who is supernatural. It just it doesn't make any sense. So we don't want to read less or more into these verses. Uh, we, want to, we want to be everything that God wants us to be.